The only reason that we continue to belabor about Gandhi is because he was assassinated, right? If he had died a natural death, we would not have elevated Gandhi to the status that he is at. On Gandhi Jayanti, we discuss the many criticisms of Mahatma Gandhi, from B.R. Ambedkar's critique to the feminist critique. We talk about Gandhi's legacy now and in the future. And we ask if Gandhi is the father of the nation, is Savarkar the ghost father of the nation? You are listening to News and Views, the Quinn's podcast series, where we introduce you to some of the greatest minds across different fields through in-depth interviews. I'm Soumya Lakhani, and today we're going to speak to Vinayak Chaturvedi. He's a professor of history at the University of California, Irvine, and he's also the author of Hindutva and Violence, B.D. Savarkar and the Politics of History, a book that was published this year. Before we proceed, please check out other episodes of News and Views on our website or on your preferred podcast app. What are the things that Mahatma Gandhi should be criticized about? And what are some of the things that you believe are seeped in just factual inaccuracies? The, the, the biggest challenge, of course, um, in, in sort of working on Gandhi, and I think this is also explains why he's probably the most written about individual in Indian history, um, is the fact that he also wrote a huge amount of material, right? I mean, his approximate 100 volumes of writings um, means that um, there is, no matter what one argues, within Gandhi's own work, um, there are ways to con- that expose his con- internal contradictions. This was actually part of his kind of, I think, strategy as well, right? For him, um, what was most important was to actually write. Um, and he, at one place, notes that you should read what I've written most recently, not what I wrote yesterday, uh, in part because my opinions and thoughts are constantly evolving, uh, developing, reflecting the contemporary moment. And so, therefore, um, for scholars who are interested in writing about Gandhi, this becomes a big challenge, right? That which moment of Gandhi are we talking about and are his ideas actually changing over time, right? And and if they are, how do we then responsibly kind of provide a critique? You know, within India, uh, we, we sort of have this kind of hagiographical tradition of celebrating the individual, the man, uh, as sort of this larger-than-life figure. Some scholars have written about the Charitra tradition in which you have these, you know, genealogies of religious men, genealogies of kings that were written um, as a way to celebrate and, and elevate them within a form of kind of Indian statecraft. But once sort of the uh, in the 20th century, you have the writings of biographies of individuals and autobiographies, and Gandhi writes an autobiography, and every major nationalist figure also writes an autobiography, um, we are left with trying to figure out, you know, do we elevate this individual to the level of these kings and religious men of the past, or can we treat them as sort of the secular humans who um, are participating in sort of a modern enterprise, um, both of the autobiography and the biography? Um, one could call it the Amar Chitarkatha legacy of uh, of how we interpret human beings um, within the biographical tradition. Um, so I think part of the, any kind of criticism has to be kind of reflected within the framing of, is this a sort of kind of dismantling of this kind of hagiography of this larger than life figure who has now been elevated either to a king or to 
a religious man. And in Gandhi's case, we can sort of see that. Right now, you just mentioned that uh, you often ask people, which Gandhi are you talking about, right? How many Gandhis exist? I mean, uh, you know, I, you, teach a, you teach a course on Gandhi. You told me you've been teaching that course for about 20 years. How many Gandhis exist as per you? Um, I'm not sure that there's a number that's quantifiable in that sense, you know, um, but I do, I mean, I always begin my class uh, by asking what assumptions people have about Gandhi, because many will have seen uh, Richard Attenborough's film, Gandhi, uh, that won the Academy Award, or they will have uh, been exposed to Gandhi in their high school textbooks in which they've read maybe a few paragraphs about Gandhi's, you know, who Gandhi was, um, and participating in the nationalist movement, fighting colonialism, and so on. What we see is the evolution of, of Gandhi himself. The, uh, I mean, recently, uh, Ram Chandra Gua's book, uh, books on Gandhi, have kind of really talked about, you know, the South African Gandhi, uh, the Indian Gandhi, um, and then sort of the kind of the legacies of Gandhi, right? And sort of reflecting back on trying to interpret him. Um, I suspect he would probably say that he, like any other figure is constantly evolving, right? And 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 it's in the act of both reading and writing that Gandhi is can be seen as having been, you know, being transformed over time. And I think that's something I always kind of emphasize, at least to my students and anyone I'm sort of talking to regarding whether it's Gandhi or Savarkar or Ambedkar or any of these figures, is that the most important thing before beginning any kind of um, critique is to actually read them. Right. And, and I think that is sort of becoming a lost art in a certain way. Uh, we can we can ch choose to poke holes in a whole bunch of uh, individuals for a whole number of reasons. Um, but at, at another level, I think um, it's really important to kind of actually read the works of these individuals as a way of sort of coming to an assessment on by yourself. You know, is my assessment actually correct? And I think that um, is, is something that I would kind of really emphasize. Um, you know, when I say that there is valid criticism of Gandhi, when we talk about Gandhi in terms of his ideas on race, his ideas on gender, you mentioned uh, in our last conversation, you had spoken about uh, a lot of your students are curious to, you know, curious to know more about and talk about and see Gandhi in 2022 in the backdrop of, you know, Black Lives Matter or the post-MeToo movement, right? Now, when I talk about the other kind of criticism that is coming about, which is the way sometimes the right wing portrays Gandhi, where they portray him only as a problematic character in the freedom struggle. So what I'm trying to understand is, what is the valid criticism of Gandhi that you address with your students or some of the questions they had, that get raised in your class? So, I mean, what I what I have my students also do is actually um, read. So in the first half of the class, I have them read Gandhi. But in the second half of the class, I have them read criticisms um, um, and interpretations of Gandhi uh, from the perspective. Uh, we uh, the Ambedkar perspective, I think, is oftentimes the most powerful um, critique of Gandhi on caste. Um, and I think students find Ambedkar's arguments very compelling in that sense. Um, there is the, um, the Muslim critique, the Muslim League's critique of Gandhi, um, that what Gandhi really wanted to do was establish um, Hindu hegemony in India. And this is a term that the Muslim League starts using and Muhammad Ali Jinnah uses quite regularly in terms of talking about 
What Gandhi really wants to do is not only create a Hindu Raj, but wants to create a Hindu hegemony over everyone else um, living in India. You have the feminist critique of Gandhi. You have the Marxist critiques of Gandhi. You have, um, and then also the Hindu rights critiques of Gandhi. And I think given that I've been sort of spending a lot of time in recent years reading Savarkar's writings and Savarkar's interpretations of Gandhi, I think the Hindu right is really fixated on Gandhi's nonviolence at one level, right? That Gandhi's nonviolence is the greatest existential threat to Hindus. And this for me is something that's really interesting. Even within Savarkar's writings, um, especially in his last book, uh, Six Glorious Epochs of Indian History or Saha Soner Pane, one of the things that he really emphasizes is the politics of assassination, right? That what's really important is to um, for Hindus to assassinate or use violence against individuals, especially who advocate nonviolence, right? Now for Savarkar, the emphasis is really on the Buddha and Buddha's nonviolence. I suspect that this is just the deflection of really that he didn't want to mention Gandhi in that explicit sort of way. But again, it's the celebration of using violence against those who advocate nonviolence. Um, for Savarkar and his disciples, one of the key things is that um, the advocacy of nonviolence is, is actually antithetical to being a Hindu. That Hindus should embrace themselves as violent beings, right? And so uh, the Buddha at one level historically, and then Gandhi uh, in the 20th century, provided that existential threat to Hindus because he was advocating nonviolence, right? He was advocating ahimsa. I want to butt in here. When you say that, you know, Savarkar is talking about how violence is something that Hindus ought to do, does he mean that in order to protect one's community, in order to protect one's honor in that context, right? Like the conversation around violence and Hinduism comes in context to protecting one's community, right? So, yes. Yes and no. I would say uh, yes in the sense that um, Savarkar also says that he abhors violence. But he says that victims of violence should be able to use violence against their perpetrators. And so one of the arguments that I raise in, in my work recently is that, that within his own writings, the original perpetrators were Hindus themselves uh, within India, right? That the Hindu became a Hindu in the act of violence, um, uh, both as the perpetrator and the victim, right? So the Hindus themselves are actually um, um, perpetrating violence. And when a figure like the Buddha or the figure like Gandhi comes along and sort of says that nonviolence is what defines a Hindu, for Savarkar, this is a major problem because it's it goes against the very, under his understanding, he says, not only of nature, but also of what it means to be a Hindu, right? And uh, within his work, he's kind of a cele celebrating Hindus who use forms of assassination as a way of uh, moving beyond the idea of nonviolence as well, right? So there's a, there's a tension there um, within uh, Savarkar's writings. But I think when we think of Gandhi, and I think Gandhi's kind of haunts Savarkar in his last work because he can't fully articulate what he wants to say about Gandhi. So instead, he talks about uh, the Hindus in the past who were fighting against nonviolence as, as a way of 
thinking about India's future, of thinking about creating a Hindu Rashtra. And in a sense, I think some of those ideas are continuing and being perpetuated uh, today. I'm very curious to understand uh, from our last conversation how some of your students are trying to understand the critique of Gandhi, you know. Uh, could you could you tell me just some of the interesting conversations that you've had with your students? So the issue of... of um of race is is an interesting. I mean, there's a a, a book by um, called the South African Gandhi, uh, in which um, Ashwin Desai and Gulam Wahid write about um, the Gandhi's complicated interpretations of race uh, regarding Africans and his interactions with Africans, um, and they they juxt- they kind of articulate it within uh, Gandhi's claim that he was a loyal subject of the British Empire, right? Um, And so he has this kind of loyalty to the British Empire, and yet he's also um, arguing for a certain kind of, or making certain kinds of remarks about Africans um, that today look very racist and uh, even, and disparaging. Um, And what we've seen is in in Ghana, in South Africa, in parts of even East Africa, any kind of monuments or statues of Gandhi have either been targeted or, or taken down. And this, in, in fact, is part of, I think, again, challenging the hagiographical uh, formation of Gandhi as a figure, right? And what we began to see is that, yes, that students became more and more uncomfortable thinking about Gandhi's um, kind of arguments or just oftentimes either arguments against or not discussing um, Africans within his writings as um, as kind of eliding a whole range of topics. Um, so in sort of the the negation of talking about it or in the disparaging comments that this that Gandhi today sort of seems um, a, a figure who is was racist, right? Similarly, your second part of the question regarding um, sort of the feminist interpretations of Gandhi, Gandhi's kind of his whole thing about in his autobiography about experiments with truth. Um, whether that means uh, paying prostitutes, whether that means um, his experiments with uh, sleeping with his uh, next to his niece, uh, and so on. Again, um, it raises major questions about Gandhi's kind of ethics and morality within that context as well, um, given the kind of conversations and debates that are happening. But um, it's important to point out that, you know, feminists, even at the time of God, during Gandhi's life, were raising these sets of concerns. And Africans during Gandhi's life were also raising uh, concerns about Gandhi's kind of um, takes on race or takes on gender and sexuality and so on. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna misrepresent that we're only doing this today, but in fact, this has been a long-term uh, set of long sets of critiques that have been emerging from the moment that Gandhi was doing his experiments and things, right? So. There were criticisms of Gandhi at the moment that Gandhi was doing these things as well, right? And what we're doing today, we privilege our contemporary moment as sort of the moment where we have discovered these things, when in fact there's a long history of these kinds of feminist critiques, but also critiques of issues of race as well. 
So uh, at the beginning of this podcast, you had also mentioned that students often find Ambedkar's criticism of Gandhi the strongest, right? I mean, there is there is so much merit to it. And you had also discussed with me the 1955 interview that Ambedkar had given to BBC about Gandhi. Can you tell us a little bit about how a lot of your students are able to understand the the Ambedkar criticism of Gandhi, especially in the in in the country that we live today? 20 years ago, um, I, uh, I would say that, or even, even earlier than that, I mean, there was very sparse work on Ambedkar as an intellectual and as a thinker. And I think that over the last two decades, we've begun to see, I mean, it's, it's sort of the Ambedkar moment is here in the sense that he can no longer be ignored as a major thinker uh, for understanding contemporary India. And as a consequence of that, what we're beginning to see is, you know, sort of a flourishing of very important works on Ambedkar. And if you're going to be writing about Ambedkar, in a sense, you are also writing about Gandhi. So in a sense, um, the development of Ambedkar as a thinker, whose writings are now kind of being uh, discussed extensively, also means that there's a, a new way of thinking about Gandhi that's happening simultaneously as well, right? Because um, the, the two, in a sense, have to be read together. And I would argue that when we're writing about Savarkar, Gandhi also has to be uh, read together with that. And we can argue that they all need to be read together anyways. Um, and I think the reason the students find Ambedkar's um, criticism uh, extremely powerful um, is simply the fact that he is, uh, he's a very good writer and he's very, art he articulates his position with great kind of, not only conviction, but with great evidence that, um, that is compelling to students regarding issues of whether it's about caste discrimination, whether it's about, um, you know, the, the structures of the caste system have prevented Dalits from, and what Ambedkar calls depressed classes from, uh, fulfilling themselves as human beings, right? And I think the humanistic part of Ambedkar's arguments um, within kind of the liberal tradition is very, very powerful in that sense. Um, and Gandhi, in a sense, uh, are is seen as that kind of religious figure who is wanting to improve, um, you know, the Varna system uh, from within. And Ambedkar sort of trying to challenge it from the outside and sort of saying, this is not uh, going to be resolved if we leave it into the hands of people like Gandhi himself, right? And I think that 1955 interview, um, I show the students that interview as well, uh, in part because he makes two or three very important points. One is that there's the public Gandhi and then there's the private Gandhi, right? Gandhi in his writings um, always says that he wants to, he doesn't, he wants to dismantle the idea of the private and the public when it comes to him. But what Ambedkar argues is, no, that there is still a private Gandhi. And he says that Gandhi shows me his fangs when I meet him. But he doesn't show his fangs when he meets other people uh, in private or in public, right? So, so Ambedkar is revealing this after Gandhi's death, right? This is happening seven years after Gandhi's death. Um, and so I think that's a really important kind of moment in sort of saying that, you know, that look, um, the kind of interactions I had with Gandhi were certainly not the Gandhi that we know publicly. And he says this very polemically, and I think that it, he might actually be correct that the only reason that we continue to belabor about Gandhi is because he was assassinated, right? If he had died a natural death, 
we would not have elevated Gandhi to the status that he is at. This interview is also important because it's right before he dies, right? This is right before Ambedkar's own death, uh, less than a year later. So I think for uh, for thinking about Ambedkar's critiques, I think the students find um, that there is something else that's going on in this in this relationship, uh, Gandhi's relationship, not only with Ambedkar but with, with others, uh, and as a political figure, right? That Gandhi is a political figure who has figured out a way to remain powerful and dominant. In, in, um, in sort of pushing a certain kind of uh, idea and discourse about nation in which the OBCs, the, uh, the Dalits, the depressed classes, all are being marginalized, right? So, so it seems for the American students that this is really unfair, this is unjust. Um, and this is coming from the individual who is in, responsible for writing India's constitution, right? He's one of the main figures. So the, the main constitutionalist in that sense is saying that this nation is unfair, right? This, the, the ways in which we celebrate Gandhi is unfair and what is being proposed uh, in the construction of India as a republic is unfair. So I think they find Ambedkar in that sense very powerful. You know, now if we just take the conversation back to a little bit about uh, last year when I had spoken to you about Savarkar and I'd asked you this question that, you know, is there a concentrated effort at sort of defaming Gandhi and what is the purpose of it by the right wing? And you had mentioned that more than defaming Gandhi, it's about replacing Gandhi with Savarkar. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this strange conversation about defaming and replacing? The fact that, I mean, at one level, the fact that Gandhi has been elevated to the status of the father of the nation. Even if we look at Nathuram Godse's writings, prison writings before he was executed, what he emphasizes is that, he, that as the son of Mother India, he needed to protect the mother from the father. And Godse sort of sees himself as the ultimate son who ends the conversation, right? There's no more conversation because of his actions. But it also means that, as I was pointing out, regarding these kind of hagiographies of Gandhi as larger than life will mean that his authority is constantly going to be questioned as long as he remains in this position, right? I mean, I mean, the greatest irony at some level is Gandhi's uh, face on every single currency note in India. I mean, this, in a certain sense, is a sort of an anti-Gandhian move in and of itself, right? I mean, the question then becomes, is, is that a certain form of defamation of Gandhi's thought as well? But I think in the long run, the idea is to actually replace him, right? Which is what I'd be, I, I sort of suggested last time we spoke is that Savarkar um, is sort of the father in waiting, right? That the Hindutva strategy in the long run is to, uh, is not only just to go after Gandhi, but everything that represents the Indian National Congress overall. And what they figured out and probably very strategically is that it's a long-term strategy of dismantling um, at every level. Um, and also, kind of questioning uh, the authority at every single level and simultaneously building Savarkar's authority and reputation um, from its kind of marginal status into sort of the dominant place that it is reaching today, right? So whether we imagine in the next 10 years or 20 years, India's notes, currency notes will no longer just be with Gandhi, but you can imagine that Savarkar's image will be there. I don't think we're that far off uh, from that happening. Again, this, this culture uh, of statue building, of monument building um, is going to continue to proliferate, right? I mean, we're, we're building bigger monuments, we're building more monuments, but Savarkar, you're going to be, I, I, 
I suspect is, is sort of the ghost father in the waiting. I mean, he is going, he is being resurrected in that sense. Um, right. You know, which brings me to my next question, which is, uh, this is the 75th year of India's independence. 25 years later, as India turns 100 as an independent country, how do you think Gandhi will be remembered? What do you think his legacy will be? So there, I think, again, this, there's, a, there's an academic question and then there's the public question in this, right? And I think in the academic question, I think scholars will continue to, I mean, uh, if past trends are an indication of where the future trends, um, there's no shortage of people working on Gandhi today. I think there, we're going to have, um, there are more works that are coming out by uh, scholars on Gandhi. Uh, and, and so in a sense, as we also start have more people working on Ambedkar, more people working on Savarkar, more people working on other major figures um, of the 20th century, uh, what we're going to see is that, in a sense, that Gandhi is going to be interpreted through different optics that we haven't seen thus far as well. So, in a sense, uh, if we're going to if if we're going to celebrate India's hundred anniversary. Uh, then that means that uh, Gandhi can't simply be ignored in that in that sense. Um, but I think the Hindu right that's critical of Gandhi, or the the folks who are uh, involved in sort of writing about Ambedkar, um, or even the feminist critique, or the race you know the anti racist critiques. I mean, I think these will also continue to grow. Um, so we're going to we're going to evolve the conversation, I think, and the debates will continue to evolve. So this is kind of the academic uh, response to it. But I think the public response, it really depends on how far um, the government is going to really push to uh, replace Gandhi with Savarkar. Right. And I don't think there is any other individual who they will replace him with. Right. Um, I think it'll be a long, slow process, but I think um, we're going to begin to see other things that are going to be happening as well. I, I don't think that uh, this is over in that sense. I think it's going to continue to evolve. And so publicly, Gandhi's presence in the public space might diminish. Uh, but like I said, I mean, maybe Gandhi doesn't belong on ad in advertising and maybe Gandhi doesn't really belong on the Indian currency notes. And maybe Gandhi doesn't need to have that same presence in order for his legacy to continue um, in these kind of multiple ways, right? So there's no one legacy left. There's going to be multiple ways in which he's interpreted. Right. My last question to you would be, what is your idea, your definition of Gandhi? Flaws and all. I mean, we, we've discussed critiquing Gandhi. We've discussed the criticism of Gandhi. We've discussed his legacy. But if you have to define Gandhi, how would you do that? So... Um, so I tell my students that um, when they they also ask me this question, and I always say that um, I really don't want to answer it, but I don't think I can say that today. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can. But I, I but to answer the question, I'll answer it in slightly a different way, and then uh, then address it. I mean, one of when I started um, uh, studying um, in graduate school, one of the things I promised myself was that I would not work on Gandhi. And, and instead, I ended up working on Gujarat uh, for my first, for my PhD dissertation, my first book. And I quickly realized that this was an impossibility, that I would have to talk about Gandhi if I'm talking about Gujarat. And I'm talking about the nationalist movement in Gujarat, that I, I would have to talk about Gandhi. So the Gandhi that I uh, wrote about in my first book 
um, was a Gandhi who recognized that that large amount, large numbers of low caste peasants um, who were um, being marginalized both by the the colonial uh, state, but also by um, local landed populations um, were in trouble. So in a sense, the Gandhi that I left um, thinking about after my first book was a Gandhi who was again a political tactician who had this reputation of supporting peasants and had the support of peasants, but in the heartland where he had the greatest support among especially the Patidars and the Patels that we know today, um, that they gained their dominance on the backs of these low caste peasant groups who were completely marginalized in the 19th and 20th century and continue to remain marginalized today, right? So um, if, if you've seen uh, Delhi Crime, uh, the Netflix series on season two, um, it begins with denotified tribes and what the legacies of denotified tribes. So the communities that I had written about in my first book are today's denotified tribes in Gujarat. Um, so in a sense, the legacy of Gandhi from my first project was really about like these legacies of criminality, these legacies of marginalization in Gujarat that had a lot to do uh, with kind of the tactics and strategies Gandhi had imposed with his supporters to the detriment of this population, right? So for me, that was one part of my understanding of Gandhi, right? My second understanding of Gandhi was when I'm working on my Savarkar book, I realized very quickly that in order for me to write about Savarkar, I had to become fluent in Gandhi, if, if we want to put it that way, right? And this was a Gandhi that was um, slightly different than the Gandhi that I had been reading about, because this was a Gandhi who was talking about um, celebrating nonviolence vis-a-vis Savarkar's violence. Savarkar's himsa versus Gandhi's ahimsa. Savarkar's interpretation of Gita his interpretation of Gita, Savarkar's interpretation of the word Swaraj, Gandhi's interpretation of Swaraj were completely antithetical to one another. So it was a different kind of interpretation of Gandhi that came out of the Savarkar project in which um, it was the sort of intellectualized Gandhi who was um, arguing for a different kind of understanding of what it meant to be a Hindu. So for me, the challenge has been trying to put the two, we're talking about different Gandhis, right, earlier on, but for me, this has been the challenge of trying to put together the two together and then simultaneously finding Ambedkar very compelling. I mean, you know, I haven't, I've written very briefly about Ambedkar, but I find Ambedkar's critique of Gandhi also very compelling, which in a sense aligns with what these peasants in Gujarat were arguing against Gandhi um, in, the, in the beginning of the 20th century. So if I had to choose, if I had to sort of say where, which Gandhi, uh, what my, interpretation is, I would still hold on to that first project and sort of think about, you know, that here you had a, there was a moment when we're talking about the freedom of the nation, uh, we're talking about Swaraj, but simultaneously, it's the the criminalization and shackling of large peasant populations who are come from marginalized communities and continue to remain marginalized in India today. So I think, um, I don't know if that fully answers the question, but for me, um, it's it's sort of a critique of Gandhi that comes from the issue of both caste and class uh, that I still uh, find difficult and problematic uh, in his thinking and his actions. But at the same time, you feel that he 
did have a major role to play in India's independence. I mean, he's not a figure who can be ignored or just be criticized. There is, there are redeeming qualities to the man you feel. And that's a difficult question. Yes. I mean, I think, uh, I don't want to, in my critique of him, I don't, or my criticism of some of his ideas, I don't want to remove the, the, the power that he had as, as a political strategist and as a politician, right? I mean, I think we, it's important to kind of place him uh, within that framing as well. I'm not trying to minimize uh, his kind of uh, position, but simultaneously um, there is an ambivalence, I think, uh, as well in, in thinking through this today, right? I mean, again, I'm looking at it through certain sets of optics and certain sets of questions. Um, I mean, I think uh, we can be critical of most political figures um, while recognizing that they have certain kind of strategies and tactics that were effective at that moment in challenging certain kinds of uh, issues. And I think for the Hindu right, this is also the problem, right? That mm. that by choosing nonviolence, um, uh, not only against Muslims, not only against Christians, not only against other Hindus, that and creating a, um, a republic that claims to be secular um, has put them in, a, in an awkward position vis-a-vis um, -vis the nationalist movement, right? I mean, what place do they have in the nationalist movement without trying to dismantle the constitution at one level um, and also trying to create a Hindu Rashtra and what that would mean with this kind of legacies of all these figures simultaneously, right? So I think these issues um, we thought were resolved in 1947. Then we, then they, we thought that they were resolved with India's constitution, India becoming a republic. But what we're finding is that they're not resolved, right? Um, that the Hindu right doesn't want them to be resolved. Um, and the only resolution would be is a continued marginalization of Gandhi, right? I mean, that's part of the strategy. Got it, got it. What a fascinating conversation on critiquing Gandhi, remembering Gandhi, you know, dismantling and understanding him, dissecting the many Gandhis that exist. And thank you so much for your time. As always, it's been supremely educational for me and I hope it's going to be equally educational for all the people who are listening to this today. And that was Professor Vinayak Chaturvedi talking about critiquing Gandhi and remembering Gandhi. To tell us your views about this episode of News and Views, DM us on Instagram at The Quint. Also, don't forget to check out thequint.com for more groundbreaking reports and videos. This is Soumya Lakhani and I'll see you next time. News and Views is a Quint original podcast and its executive producers are Shelley Valia and Ritu Kapoor. This episode was hosted by Soumya Lakhani and produced and edited by Prateek Lidhu. The theme music is from BMG Production Music and a very special thanks to our guest, Professor Vinayak Chaturvedi. You were listening to The Quint's podcast.